allowing ourselves to show up in a way that like allows connection by just telling our story, by just talking about our pain points, by um, showing up raw and authentically, and then watching people um, connect to us and love on us and hold us is yeah, so powerful. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life explores the stories of real people who've navigated their way out of life's toughest situations, emerging with greater strength and resilience. If these stories remind you of your own journey and you or someone you know need help, our collective journey is here for you. Whenever you're ready to take that next step, reach out to us at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Welcome back to another episode of From Darkness to Life. This is Ryan, your host for season four, coming at you out of the Plugged In Media Network studio, as usual. Um, I just want to thank, once again, all the listeners for tuning in to these episodes and sharing them. That's the most important piece, right, is, is sharing them because it's been proven to me over time and time again that we never know who's going to need to hear these messages of uh, recovery, messages of resilience, um, all these messages, these stories of hope. We don't know who's going to need to hear them and the moments they're going to need to hear them, right? So the more we share them, the more we get them out there and the more we start normalizing these conversations and uh, normalizing our experiences, right? I think that is is the most helpful piece that uh, these podcasts bring to places. So with that, I'm not even going to fool around anymore. I'm going to get right into this episode with our guest, Tannis, because uh, uh, we crossed paths a little while ago and Tannis's story, I was just sharing before the podcast started that if there's a story of resilience out there that, you know, hits, hits me in the feels more than this one, <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear it actually, because this one is such a, a resilient story of hope, <coughs> excuse me, but uh, I'm not even going to ramble anymore. I'm just going to introduce our guest Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Amazing. Uh, yeah, like I said, Alana our, our sent me a link to a lot of your material, and, and I started researching and looking through it, and it was just one of those things where I was laying in bed the night I started reading some of your blog posts, and, and I couldn't quit, and it was about 45 minutes of reading for me, and oh my goodness, it really hit me. And uh, I think it's, I have a two-year-old right now, and, and I just could mm. not imagine, you know, some of the journey you went through with your daughter, and and I'm so grateful that you're here to share it with our guests and and not just like all the other stories we share on here, right? It's it's about normalizing the conversation, but also showing people, you know, what resources are out there, what tools, how did you learn the skills and abilities to build this resilience, to keep motivating yourself to go every day and be there for your daughter. And and just that story of hope, it's it's fascinating to me. <clears throat> so yeah. Yeah, there is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you today, Tannis? Where Where do you call home? Uh, I'm in Okotoks, okay. Alberta. Yep. Uh, in my home office. Yep. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Um, I know on your website, like I said, I'm. I did a little bit of background exploration, if you will. Uh, you're a certified life coach. You got lots of training in grief and trauma therapy or counseling, and uh, I, one of the things I love on your website that you talk about being a medical mama. Mm-hmm. I love that. Can you kind of shed some light on what, you know, that all looks like? Yeah. So that's definitely where it all started. Um, accepting that title of being a medical mom, which is a title that I never uh, thought I would hold and um, have often not wanted to hold. Um, but I think that's the the thing about resilience is uh, the first step is acceptance, mm-hmm. accepting your story and living into that. So um, yeah, that title 
came to me about five years ago. We had a one-year-old. So we had a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And our one-year-old is named Luca. She woke up one morning. So right before her first birthday, she was 11 months old and she woke up and, uh, I went to get her out of her bed. She had slept in. She was quite like lethargic and I, um, didn't look quite well. I went to change her diaper and her entire diaper was full of blood, uh, bloody urine. And, um, obviously that was extremely concerning. So I, uh, called a friend, dropped off my older daughter at the time and we rushed to the hospital. And, uh, yeah, it was the first time I'd ever been in emergency with her. Um, she was a very normal, healthy kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was months, uh, a couple months, about six weeks from that point where we did like a bunch of tests. They thought she had um, blood cancer. They thought that there was maybe some genetic disorder. It was a whirlwind for about six uh, weeks until they found a massive tumor in her abdomen. So it was about the size of a grapefruit in her 11 month old body. So obviously huge. And it was causing, um, her, she had an artery running right through the, uh, tumor, which was causing her to shed her red blood cells. And, uh, they came out in her urine. And so they were making her, she went through multiple like blood transfusions at that time to keep her, um, hemoglobin high enough for her to function, uh, Mm -hmm. until we found that. So Yeah, they realized that it had actually been there since she was born and it had grown from like the size of like a pea probably when she was born to the size of a grapefruit in in 11 months. Wow. And it needed to come out, obviously. Um, And I remember at that time feeling so much relief when they found it because they were like, it should be fine. She will go into surgery. It'll be a pretty complicated surgery, but she will um, come out on the other side, tumor-free. It's not cancerous. It's called a teratoma, a benign tumor. Okay. Um, And we were, we were okay. So I was like, okay, that, this will be a kind of a crazy story when she'll be able to tell when she's older. She, uh, she had a crazy tumor, but that was the end of it. We thought, so, um, four days after her first birthday, we went in for surgery at the children's hospital in Calgary and, uh, she went in and it was about a nine hour surgery. So very complicated. Uh, her arteries were wrapped around this tumor. So they knew that they were going to have to take out one artery, but they thought that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, the other one would take over and she'd be okay. Um, and yeah, nine hours later, she was in the, the PICU, the children's ICU at the children's and, uh, she wasn't waking up from her surgery. It was like later in the evening and they started doing blood work and noticing that her liver numbers were increasing and she wasn't able to be intubated or extubated. And she there was something going on. We didn't know what. Um, in the middle of the night, that night, uh, her blood work was extremely concerning. They uh, rolled her. We went for an emergency CT scan and it showed that she was going into multi-organ failure. Or at that point, we thought just liver failure. Um, there was no blood supply to her liver. And they didn't really know why. So we were stars ambulanced to Edmonton. Uh, it's the transplant capital of Canada or of Western Canada. So they thought she needed a liver transplant. So, um, we rushed, we had my brother-in-law drive us to Edmonton. I, we raced the helicopter. I think we got there in like two and a half hours from Calgary. Um, and we researched the whole time, like what a liver transplant is. Okay. What can we, how do you live with that? Who's the donor? Like all this stuff. And we had it all planned out by the time we got to the Stollery and the children's hospital in Edmonton. And we uh, got into the PICU there, and uh, we weren't allowed to fly with her because it was she was at a very fragile state, um, being intubated and having like being so little. So they needed a lot of staff, so we couldn't fit in the um, transport helicopter. But we got to Edmonton, and uh, 
Yeah, the transplant surgeon came to see us and said he looked at her scans and um, it was way more than a liver transplant. She was Uh going into multi-organ failure. Uh, She would have 12, maybe 24 hours of life left. And uh, what had happened is the only way the tumor could come out was multiple arteries were clipped. It was wrapped around um, an insane amount of uh, artery that they didn't realize until they went in there. And uh, yeah, she had no blood supply to her abdomen. So, um, yeah, that was by far like the hardest moment of my life to date for sure. Um, I remember just like falling to my knees and being like, what in the world? Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, how is that happening? Uh, we called all of our friends and family. Lots of people drove up from Oktobes, Calgary area. Uh, we had some family in Edmonton as well. And we spent the night, I think there was probably like 20, 30 of us in her little hospital room. Mm -hmm. Um, just like crying and praying and not knowing what was going to come of um, the situation. And I remember in the middle of the night, it was about probably about 5 or 6 a.m., uh, we transported her out of the crib that she was in and into like a hospital bed so that we could lay with her. Mm-hmm. And about an hour later, after that, one of the doctors came in and said that her, her liver numbers were s- stabilized. They were extremely high. There was no blood supply, but they had um, stopped increasing. And he was like, I don't know why. I'm not sure what's happening, but um, it's enough to like hold her off for a few more hours like we don't really know um every hour was kind of touch and go and it literally went on like that for seven weeks um she was given 24 hours (laughs) yeah seven weeks of um in the picu away from home we had another daughter like i said at the time so she would come and visit us um there was a lot of things that like they found that she had a um a little like nerve or a vein from her esophagus that came down and like kept her liver alive at a functioning about 10%. So it was enough for her to like survive. Uh, she had no, like everything was dead and narcotic in her, in her abdomen. Um, so they were really worried about sepsis. What she needed, they were telling us is a multi-organ transplant. So she needed five organs transplanted from a deceased donor, her same blood type, same age. Um, she was top of the list in Canada and in multiple places in the States. And they were very, did not think that was going to happen. They'd only done a couple of them. Um, And because she was so fragile, they didn't think that they could actually get the organs, the dead organs out of her body and put new ones in without her going into septic shock. So it was something we were, we were hoping for, but there was very little um, likelihood of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. We waited seven and a half weeks. Yep. That's the needle in a Um, needle in a haystack finding that donor right yes and a lot of um like a lot of the team didn't even really talk to us much about transplant because that was it was almost like too hopeful they were like that's probably not going to happen um but seven and a half weeks later uh we got a call uh, in the middle of the night it was 3 a.m got a call that uh there was a donor available in the states for her and they were going to pick up the organs right now and it was like the biggest shock we were like a like this just the whole um nuance of what was happening on the other side of this uh well we are like this is the biggest miracle we've ever been given we also didn't know how hopeful the surgery would be but they were like this is our only option uh she was basically on life support kind of in and out of consciousness for about seven weeks so we she kind of opened her eyes not um back and forth like that right um and yeah, she went in for this surgery seven weeks later and, uh, they, when they opened her up, 
her entire, so they didn't do any more imaging after that emergency CT scan because um, there was just no point and it was too hard to get her into the imaging. So um, when they opened her up, they were like, we're just going to wait and see what happens and um, just hope for the best. Like there was zero answers for us. Every time the doctors would come in, they would be like, we don't really know what's happening today. We are just trusting her and trusting um, whatever she's going to show us. It was a very, um, yeah, very interesting experience to just like give it up, um, trust this little one-year-old body to um, show us where we were going. Um, When they opened her up, her entire organs had been walled off. Like her body had created, basically, they explained it like a sack of dead organs. So they were able to just scoop that out. It hadn't spread to anywhere else in her body. Septic shock was not a risk. Um, And they put in the new organs and it went extremely successfully. They were very hopeful after surgery. Uh, She was the seventh a kid in Western Canada to receive this um, kind of uh, transplant and the first female, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And it was a crazy journey from there, but it was like, we were on the other side of that, that hill and um, she was going to be okay. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is probably one of the most remarkable stories I have ever heard. When you talked about moving Luca out of that crib into a bed so that, you know, you and your husband or whoever could lay with her and and be with her, right? What the, you said the doctors talked about her liver kind of stabilized at that point. Yeah. And they, I remember them coming in and being like, Oh, you know, like she's, she's actually, um, they were taking blood work and giving her like epinephrine to keep her stable, like every about 10, 20 minutes, just drawing blood from her line constantly. And, uh, the last blood draw after we laid with her, um, it was just like that human connection, that touch, uh, it stopped and they never really increased from there. They were obviously like very, um, like not survival rate, but enough that to keep her stable at that point. And yeah, and we, we slept with her. Someone was with her 24-7. Like, we never left her bedside. And, um, yeah, pretty wow. cool. Wow. That, you know, yeah. that, you, you hear or you watch movies and you see these miraculous stories like that, right, where unexplainable things happen. And when you were talking about peace, laying on the bed with her and, and her liver stabilized, that's where my mind went is like, how is this explainable? Yes, I feel like the entire story, no one, especially being in the medical, um, like being in the hospital and being surrounded by medical professionals and them telling you, like, we literally don't know. We've never seen this before. We cannot give you answers. Um, Nobody knew. And it forced me to just trust. Like, I didn't have a option to, um, like, I didn't really care. They would come in and be like, okay, well, this is what we're seeing today. And I was like, it doesn't matter. Like every day you're seeing something different. Um, nobody can give me answers. That's not where my like security laid. Like it, I wanted it to at the beginning, yeah. um, especially like that drive to Edmonton being like, okay, we'll figure this all out. We'll, um, we'll figure out how to take care of her. We, we've got it all. We had a plan, you know? And then, um, yeah, the universe is like, no, you don't. <laughs> um, I, she has a different plan and she's going to show you what that is. And, um, it's still like that. Like she still has like touch and go moments. That first year after transplant was, um, so hard. Like she was in the hospital constantly, everything like the mi- a minor cold was like life threatening to her. So it was just a very scary year, but that's what forced me into, 
um, having to rely on um, like something bigger than myself, having mm-hmm. to rely on this this act of resilience because it was the only way that I was going to see the other side of it. Um, yeah, but wow. it was like an act of choice for sure. Wow. And what was what was that like yeah. for you, Tannis? I know myself, and and I think just generally in terms of society, right? We we try or we think we can control so much stuff. How hard was that, or how difficult was that for you to to just turn that over and believe in something that there's a plan and you just got to go with it? Yeah, I I'm sure everyone feel would feel differently about this. I do like control like most of us do, but I felt like it was my only option or it felt like the only option that would get me to a place I wanted to be. Um, I knew that I wanted to be able to look back on this regardless of what the outcome was and um, be proud of the way that I showed up for her and showed up for my family. And I was like, the only way I'm going to do that is by giving up control and trusting. And I had this, I remember sitting with her one of those days of that seven weeks uh, in her hospital bed and like journaling, we had music playing constantly. Like it was a very like, um, yeah, healing atmosphere. And I remember writing down, I don't remember if it was in a song or I read something, but writing in my journal about how I wanted to trust that whatever was happening, whatever was going to happen, whatever is happening right now was supposed to be that way. Like I don't um, have to try to change the variables. It was like, it was like a, um, like a flow with it, like release the need to to know, the need to control it, um, and just like trust that whatever's happening is supposed to happen. And that that's a, was a hard thing to wrap my head around because I was like, this is so painful. This isn't supposed to be like this. Life isn't supposed to be like this. Um, but her just like laying there, peaceful. I knew that there was like she was. So much was going on in her mind and her body. She was like, yeah, it is. Like this is this is my story. This is the way it's supposed to go. Um, and it will not be easy and it's not supposed to be. And leaning into that just made me like able to give up that control because um, it wasn't supposed to look a different way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Wow. What a cool way to frame that. And and that's something that, you know, I, I learned nine years ago when I myself, I got into recovery from substance use disorder and, and it was about turning it over, right? And, and understanding that there is a plan out there and uh, I can't control everything. I need to just trust that something out there greater than me has a plan. And uh, when I start to take control of it, I mess it up. Totally. Like you can't see the bigger picture and you're not supposed to be able to see it. And so like the one step at a time, we're just being like, okay, one day at a time showing up to this day, um, in a way that like I feel proud of in a way that even just like looking back now, like it's been five years and looking back and knowing that like, I would never be the person I am today without all of that happening. And I, as much as I would never want, like wish that upon anybody or wish it upon myself, I, I would never, I could do it all over again to like, know that this is like the way it was supposed to be for her, for me. It's like once I let go and released, I could lean into like all those lessons and all the growth and it felt so um, rewarding. I was going to say good. It didn't feel good, but it felt rewarding. Wow. Yeah. When you guys, you guys obviously, you like you said, you spent a lot of time away from home. You spent a lot of time in Edmonton months on on end, right? What, what does that look like for your family unit? Where logistically, like that's, stuff you know you hear these stories of crisis and chaos and but the day-to-day routines what is how does that impact your other daughter like where do you guys stay what did that look like for you guys yeah so we 
we had so much um, support uh, logistically because yes, like when crisis happens like that, you're not thinking about like all the logistics, but they matter. So we had um, the first week we, uh, my daughter stayed back home with aunties and grandma and all of that. Um, And then we eventually, I think it was after the first week we got into the Ronald McDonald house. So for the first week, we didn't want to go to the Ronald McDonald house because we didn't want to leave her bedside and Mm -hmm. you had to actually be there physically in your room. Um, So there was like a couple uh, family beds in the hospital that we uh, would trade off in or family members would stay in. Um, But eventually we got into the Ronald McDonald house. We were in Edmonton for six months in total because we had to do a lot of her recovery there as well. Um, Three months post-transplant there. So... Uh, yeah, we lived at the Ronald McDonald House. It's like a couple blocks from the hospital, and it w- is my favorite place in the world. Like, I mean, it's so what they do is um, mind blowing. Like, they feed you, they house you, um, they like have activities for the kids. A lot of our post transplant stuff, we were outpatients for about a month and a half as well. So she would live at the Ronald McDonald House um, with us, so then we could be more of like a family unit for that last little bit. But we, um, yeah chucked our daughter to and from Edmonton or people did um, because it was so hard to have her there with us while we like it was so touch and go um, it was really hard on her though so, like it was a it still is something that we deal with um, today she was only she turned three during all of this but she was so young and um, we had a lot of community support so much like we had a GoFundMe that um, went up we had I, there was a community in Okotoks that put together like Christmas for us so we were in the hospital from October to April so we were there over Christmas and we had so many people just um take care of us like when we got home or I don't think we bought a meal from like the time we were there until April there was a meal train that went on that was like skip the dishes meal train so skip the dishes came to our hospital room like every night um somebody just set that up I don't even know who it was (laughs) just set that up for us um we had uh like meal trains when we got home, we, we were so, I honestly think that's the reason that I was able to just like put my hands up and be like, okay, whatever happens happens because I felt so held. Like I didn't have to worry about any of those things. Um, yes, that was huge. The community was massive. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. I I knew a little bit about the Ronald McDonald house, excuse me, but I, I didn't know how, you know, the, your community and how the individual's I'm sure there's lots of individuals that didn't even know your family just stepped up, right? It's that human nature to help people a lot of times. And it it just jumps in my head, right? It takes a village. And that's what it sounds like, you know, what came together for you folks was, you know, this village of support. So, and including the Ronald McDonald house so that you guys could focus solely on yourselves and your daughter's healing, right? And everything else was just kind of falling into place, which is, <laughs> that rarely happens. Yes, uh-huh, that's 100% what it felt like. Um, we were so, yeah, just so held. And yeah, I think that that's, that's a huge piece of resilience is like finding your community. And mm-hmm. um, there were so many people that did not know us. I shared, what had happened is I shared when she was being airlifted, I shared it online. I think I had like 200 followers on Instagram or something. It was just like family and friends. And I shared this and it got, and then I wrote a post about her, I think that night or something. And literally just like raw, it was like an online journal is what I call it. Cause it was just my raw, honest, um, struggle, uh, through her story. And it blew up, like it went everywhere. And so there's people like worldwide, um, 
sending us things, praying for her, uh, just following along. And it gave me so much, uh, hope. I, I loved sharing. I love, um, just like writing and sharing online as it is. And so that was like a therapeutic thing for me to be able to share that and then have people connect to her and feel like they were watching, um, this miracle in action, this story in action, and no one knew the outcome. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember posting the morning that she, like, we got off that call and it was wild. Like it was just the coolest thing. People were just sending things to the hospital. We got to the hospital that morning. We had a friend staying with her overnight. Um, we got to the hospital that morning and there was like breakfast and donuts, like from people I didn't even know who they were. Um, it was super cool. Wow. Yeah. Man, that story, it's just got so many layers to it. And and I love the part around, you know, resilience. And you talked about people coming together and community and stuff, right? And and we've been doing a lot of uh, research and exploration on on key components of building resilience. And one of them is, you know, creating or being exposed to that safe, supportive, um, nurturing environment. And also relationships, safe, supportive, stable relationships. And you just kind of laid it out in your own experience, what that looked like for you guys that helped build your resilience through this. Yes. A hundred percent. I know that it would not look the same if I didn't feel um, like there was just like a safe place for me to land. Cause I also didn't feel like I had to have it all together all the time. Like it was an emotional roller coaster for me. Um, some days it felt easy to accept where we were. Some days I just like fought it so hard. Uh, but I felt like no matter where I landed, it was like a soft, safe, spot because people were like, we've got you, like, we've got your family. We've got Luca. We, um, you're going to be okay no matter what. So I could lean into those like lessons and those hard things that, um, I think, yeah, pain requires us to lean in, but it's so hard to do that. If you don't feel like, um, you'll be caught when you do, it feels Mm -hmm. like a deep, dark hole, you know, but it's not, it's not bottomless, but it feels that way when you get inside it. Wow. Yeah. I I really, I really, uh, love how you talk about leaning into those feelings and leaning into that pain, right? Because in our society today, nine times out of 10, we're, we're, it's kind of ingrained in us or it's, it's modeled for us. You know, we, we avoid it. We, we mask that. We pretend it isn't there. We numb it out with whatever other behaviors or substances we can use. And, and it's very rare that you hear people talk about leaning into their, their emotions. They're leaning into the pain, right? People want to avoid that stuff. Yes. And I think like, it also translated to me wanting to save my kids from that pain. Like my older daughter, her name's Berlin Mm -hmm. and Luca. I just wanted to like save them from it. I didn't want them to go through this. And it was interesting because Luca didn't have, there was no way for me to save her. She was like, she was like, this is up to me. Like you have to trust it. And, and like going forward, like when they go through painful experiences, it's a constant lesson for me to be like, be the support. Don't try to change it. Don't try to control their, their um, experiences, their life. Like that's not up to you. And it's the same. It's a constant practice for myself too. Like life is not supposed to look a different way. Um, it's requiring you to like give up control, lean in. It won't be bottomless. It won't be, you will find the other side and, um, yeah, it's there. Man, that's, I I don't know. I talk about this lots in our podcasts over the years, but you know, certain stories, certain topics, certain experiences, they just hit you a different way. Right. And I get goosebumps and, and listening to your story and, and just how you guys as a family unit and how Luca's come through the other side of it. And it is, oh man, for lack of a better term, it's the most resilient story I've heard. It's fascinating. And it just, it just shows the power of, uh, 
community, the power of um, the unknown, I think, right? We talked about this, like there's many things in, in that short journey, which seems like a very long journey, that six, seven months that happened with Luca, that's unexplainable. Yeah. So unexplainable. And I know that like, if I would have known the outcome, like if I could have seen my life five years down the road, like I am today, I, um, like would have been okay. I would have been like, okay, you, you, you're okay. Your family's okay. But I also know that like, I would never choose to go through it, but like, we don't get to see the, um, the other side, you know, we don't get to see ourselves even like six months down the road. Um, but that's the point because like, if we did, we wouldn't do the work, you know, because the only reason I see myself now is because I like chose to lean into that pain. And I was like, able to because I felt supported and I I knew that that was what was required of me mm-hmm. but I would never um I wouldn't have to do it if I was like oh you'll be okay you know like you want to see yourself there but it's not the way it works huh. wow yeah and I think I think what you were just describing right like those circumstances that you were going through with your daughter at that time right they're they're kind of unavoidable you can't well I mean you could avoid it all and and check out of life and do all these things right but a lot of times and most people would never do that in that circumstance that you're in right but to be able to see that things are moving forward on a day-to-day basis and are totally out of your control um you know what's what's that like for you today you said that that was something that was really hard to do at the start and it's something that you're working on you know in life in general now is that something that you continuously do now is just turn it over believe that there's something out there that's that's got a plan yeah i like, I don't know if it ever becomes totally natural. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think that it's something I always have to, um, like, we just, we want safety, you know, we want protection. So, um, it always feels unsafe to just, like, give it up. But I've just had, um, like, I've proven to myself that the ability to give it up actually leads me to a place that feels, I feel more connected to myself. I feel more connected to the people around me. Um, it's just such a more like authentic way of living because I actually can't control the future as much as I want to. So I, I definitely, um, have to come back to that often. Like when life gets hard, when things like don't go the way I want them to, when life starts to like look differently than the way I planned it, um, it is an act of like stillness and like, um, like self-discipline to be like, okay, I am not going to try to control all the variables here. I'm going to flow with the way that life is like showing me it's going. Um, and it will feel, uh, better. It'll feel like there's not as much resistance, you know? Um, so it feels like, yeah, things get thrown at me and I'm like, okay, like, what is this? What's the lessons here? What way do I, what way is this choosing me like, or showing me the direction to go? Definitely doesn't feel, um, easy all the time. There's definitely circumstances and situations that it feels um, easier to do that in. It's interesting being like, I always think what the difference it would be if I was the one who was like um, medically fragile or going through that. It's almost like it took, because it was my child, I already, there was already a level of like, no control, you know, like I, and I feel that today, like when she gets sick or like if there's um, sickness going around or COVID was like a huge thing too. It was Mm -hmm. just a so much unknown. Um, it, it was just like proof to me that like, I can't control that. She is like her own human. She has her own story and mine is just wrapped up in that. So I think that that was like a good practice for it first to be her and me to recognize that. And then now when it's myself and my own life, um, it, it's like, 
yeah, it's just a, a practice for sure. When we talk about that journey that, you know, your family went through, what kind of life alterations, you know, moving forward? Well, first let's talk about Luca a little bit. How's Luca doing today? So this happened, what, five, six years ago, you said five years ago? Yeah. So yeah. it was actually December 17th will be her um, uh, five-year transplant anniversary. Wow. Um, but everything happened five years ago in October was when um, she got sick. So yeah, she's doing amazing. Uh, like I said, that first year, it's by far the hardest. She had like a she had like a central line and NG tube and ostomy for the first year and a half. So like, it was like learning a different language, taking care of her. Um, so that first like year and a half, I think by two years, she had all of that reversed. Um, she still takes like medication daily. She's immunocompromised and will be likely forever. Um, so we kind of, honestly, like we don't do a whole lot different. Like her life doesn't look a whole lot different. She's still in activities. She's still in public school. Um, we didn't really know how that would turn out. Like for a long time, we thought that she would need to be very, um, isolated. And the first couple of years she, she was, uh, cause her immune system can only get to a certain level, right? We're not like pushing her immune system right. cause it can't, it's constantly suppressed. So it's like a tricky balance. Um, she's had like minor surgeries since, uh, she gets lots of, uh, she gets blood work sometimes weekly, uh, always monthly, She's got lots of appointments, things like that. It's become very normal life for us, though, like taking care of her. And um, it's very normal for her now, too. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's, she's doing great. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic to hear. Cause, like I said, right, people who have listened to your story now on this show or, you know, in on the news back in the day or whatever, right? Also the pot or the, uh, the blog posts that you wrote on your website, which, which anybody who is really interested in, seeing a little bit more about the details of this journey that uh, Tannis and her family went on with Luca. I highly recommend reading them, but have some Kleenex next to you because it really hits you. But to see where your daughter's at today, that is, that's the part that, uh, that really lights me up, right? It's this, it's this resilience. I, I don't know, you know, you, you kind of, talk about how it's become normal part of your life now and you guys have been accustomed to this routine with your daughter and but anybody on the outside of that that's the farthest thing from a from a young child's normal life you know what it should look like and that is just an amazing opportunity to talk about you know resilience right because this is an ongoing thing for her every day and she's kind of you know just committed to it and and this is what life looks like for me and and for you folks as well I mean I just, I don't know. I'm yeah. kind of lost for words when I talk about it because it's just so out of the normal, right? But you guys are just plugging away, like just gratitude, right? Grateful for where you're at today and grateful for this journey that you're, you've all been on. And uh, it's just, yeah. it's awe-inspiring. Yeah, I think that that's like the piece, you know, like your life, you totally have this vision of what your life's going to look like and how, especially when you have kids, like what your kids are going to, they'll be healthy. They'll live normal lives. They'll be these awesome independent humans one day. And it's like, sometimes it doesn't look that way. And acceptance is such a piece of it, of resilience. It's just like, okay, this is, this is my story. This is the way it's going to go. And I, I hope to build that in her too, you know, so that she's like, this is my story. I'm not supposed to look a different way. And she is like that now. Like she does also doesn't know any different. Um, she has always, she doesn't remember life before. Even her sister doesn't really either. So she's, she's like such a like an example to me of like 
this is like, just lean into it. Like I take my meds every morning when I'm sick, I'm sick. She actually like loves going to the hospital. She's her little personality. Like it's a hard, like what came first? Is it like nature versus nurture? But like, she has such a, um, just chill, uh, go with the flow personality. So when like somebody she'll get sick, if she gets a fever, we often end up in the hospital and we never go to emergency and don't get admitted. So we're usually there for days. Um, and she's just like, okay, like this means hospital food, which she loves and snacks and, uh, Netflix. And she's like, okay, whatever, you know? Um, yeah, she's so great. I, I have never met your daughter, but this might be one of my favorite little human beings in the world just to hear her personality, right. And how she's, she's just going with it. And that's fantastic to hear. I'm, I'm in awe. What, uh, what does life look like today for you, Tannis? Like, how has this changed your life? What are you doing today? Um, that maybe you weren't doing prior to this journey. What's, what's life look like for you today? Yeah. So, um, about a year ago, yeah, last January, I, so I did, I went back to school after two years, um, post her transplant. So my background is in child and youth care counseling and I Mm -hmm. um, did some of that work, but then once Luca, I was on mat leave when she, uh, uh, was got sick. And so I never went back and obviously caretaking for her was like a full-time job. So I never went back. And then two years, um, Poster transplant, I knew that I, I had so many people ask me like, oh, would you ever like be a nurse or a doctor or like pursue the medical side of things since you've like seen that? And I was like, like absolutely not. Like, <laughs> um, that was just far from my, uh, I, I felt like that was amazing. Like I definitely speak so highly of like our medical system when it's in crisis, like they were, she was so taken care of, but there was a lot of, um, I felt this like deep desire to meet people on a different level, like not the physical level. I felt like the physical level was like taken care of, you know, like, um, nobody really knew, but she was always like, um, taken care of on a physical level, but the, the like emotional spiritual level, I, um, that's what I needed. And I received that from our community, but I also had to like search for that. Right. And so I was like, I, I want that for her. I want that for the siblings of, um, families that have medical crisis. I want that for the parents. So I went back to school um, for psychology or to finish my undergrad in psychology. And obviously I was taking like one course every six months because of the way life was. Um, and eventually that turned. So a year ago, I was like, I don't, um, don't know if this is the way, or it's just such a long-term goal. I felt so much like, um, passion to just pour into that right now. So I took um, a life coaching course and some courses on uh, trauma and grief and grief coaching. And I started a business that's called um, Hope and Stones Life Coaching. And I, yeah, work with different um, medical families. So mostly medical moms um, working on a few things for uh, siblings of, um, or not even siblings, but just uh, kids that are surrounded by um medical crisis because it's so interesting when it's they're not their bodies you know it's not their like that's a whole nother thing I think that's also a really cool route is like kids with um when their bodies are not the way that um they that everyone else's are the way that they think they're supposed to be but being the siblings it's like hard for them to understand and there's so much resilience that they need to get through that 
So, um, yeah, it's fairly new, but I do like individual coaching and then have done, um, some book club group coaching on, um, a few books that, uh, speak on resilience and just tried to build some community too, because it's like isolating, especially when your story is very unique. Like I didn't know anybody else with the same, maybe even same transplant, but like the, the way to get there is so different and the way they heal is so different. So building community just, um, with medical parents. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and I, I still am in school for psychology. I will finish that eventually and then um, hopefully do the uh, psych, uh, counseling psychology on top of that just to go with all of this. But, um, yeah, wow. yeah, I would have never taken, like, I would have never gone that way um, if it wasn't for this story. Like, I I have passion that I just never would have um, known before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that's something, you know, how our experiences I find anyway, and how our experiences can, can change the trajectory of our lives if we're present and, and following, you know, like you said, your passion, right. And I know for me personally, in my journey, I, the listeners will know this about me. I spent 18 years in the oil and gas industry and, and working out there. Um, and it wasn't until I got into recovery from active addiction that, you know, my trajectory changed, right. It was about my passion I, I soon found was talking with people and helping people and supporting them. Right. So I, as a mature student, 40 years old, back to school, got addictions counseling, uh, education and became a certified addictions counselor and, and then found, you know, more purpose in the recovery coaching and the resiliency space. And, and that's how we started doing what we're doing today, but I can completely resonate with what you're saying about finding your passion and, and following it and, and it's something that I never thought in a million years. I didn't, it wasn't even on my radar doing any of this stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I used to see them as so separate, like kind of like your life and then what you do. And not that that's like a wrong or bad way to do it. I just, it like was such a disconnect for me because mm-hmm. I think in society, we like isolate ourselves so much. Actually, you know, our like personal stories, our personal pain um, doesn't really translate into your maybe career or just like the way you live life. It's, I had, I've had so many feelings about like, okay, I have to have it all figured out in order to help people through this, which is like, so not actually what anyone's looking for. They want someone who just like understands who's, who's been there, who also is like, life is wild and nobody knows what they're doing. And this is my raw, honest thoughts. Um, I need a container for them, you know? Um, and so, yeah, when they're integrated, it's so, it just feels like it's all just one thing. Like it's not, there's not all these like, separate areas of my life and I show up so differently in all of them. It's just like the way life is. So it feels so much uh, more authentic and more satisfying. Absolutely. I, I, you worded that so well. And that's, that's exactly the feelings, you know, that I get when hashtag, you know, go to work or whatever, right. When I go to work, it's not showing up differently. This is exactly how I am in my everyday life, whether it's, after five o'clock at night or on a Saturday or Sunday or during the week, it's, it's, this is the genuine authentic way to live now. And I've never felt more purposeful in my life. Yes. hundred percent. And I think like that just translates to like for our kids, for um, society that like that thing I was talking about at the very beginning about how like living into that idea that life is happening for us, not to us. Mm. And um, when our life, we can alter our careers, our um, lifestyles, our relationships, all of those things. Um, when, when certain things happen in our lives, we see it as like, okay, where is this calling me to like redirect? Um, then, then that, that idea of like life happening for us, it just like feels more, 
more natural than it would if we're like, okay, I have to resist this life. It's happening to me. I can't handle it. I'm a victim to it. You know, Mm. I think that's a pretty powerful statement and we, we hear it a lot. We experience it a lot here in what we do. Um, you know, that victim of life kind of thing, right. And, and how powerful that is for us to stay stagnant or stay stuck in our, in our rut, whatever that looks like for somebody right in their struggle is when you can reframe that. And, and I love how you, you worded that, right. Life is not happening to us. It's happening for us. And, and when you can reframe it like that, I think it, it removes some of those big barriers that keep us stuck for so long. Yes, totally. Um, you talked about with hope and stones coaching, that's, you know, your grief coaching, um, working a lot with the siblings. And what does that look like? You know, how much we talk a lot about Luca and this, um, your other daughter, I think her name was Berlin. You said Mm -hmm. how, how much, you know, by being present for her as a sibling of Luca, how much has that taught you, you know, for, for helping other families, for being that, you know, that, that guide, that, that beacon of hope, if you, if you will, for how much has that taught you in your practice? Yeah, that's um, a huge piece. Yeah. There's just so much like separation for her. And um, also just a, like I said before, like it wasn't happening to her mm-hmm. kind of similar to my experience. Like, I think I probably can relate to her on a lot of levels because um it wasn't happening to her, but yet it was. And her whole life is flipped upside down and her whole life looks different. And, um, I haven't, so it's a new area for me to work with the siblings. I have, I'm creating a course right now for siblings of, um, medical in medical families. Um, but I think there's just a lot of like belonging that, and like normalization that needs to happen because, um, they do live like a very normal life. She does on the outside. Um, her life isn't that different, but she is surrounded by possible sickness. She's surrounded by the, the, um, what ifs of like Luca's sick. Does that mean she goes to the hospital and now like my life is kind of turned upside down again. So yeah, it's, it's working through, um, the acceptance piece for them, which is a lot of belonging. Like I think individual coaching with siblings, I think I'd love to do eventually, but um, right now the group of just like, Hey, I have a medical sibling too, or I have a medical parent or a medical like grandparent that I see in the hospital a lot and like normalizing that for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like reconnecting them to, yeah, this idea of like their life is unique as well. And their story is unique as well. Being a sibling. Wow. How, you know, I, I find so much value and, and obviously you do too, but so much value in that by helping and supporting the siblings in this situation or in these situations, because, you know, oftentimes this happens a lot and it doesn't need to be a medical crisis, but something comes up in the family unit where it impacts one person per, you know, specifically, but the siblings, because of all the attention and the focus has to obviously be put on that individual, they kind of get lost in the background. Right. And, you know, the, especially in those early years where the brain is transforming and it's building and the architecture is forming and all these experiences are creating who they are going to become, you know, they get kind of left behind. And and I see, you know, a lot of root causes in, in addiction and these things that, you know, we're dealing with people today as adults started in those early years, right. With the abandonment or not feeling worthy or not feeling good enough or, you know, lack of attention, um, those safe supportive relationships with parents and, so when you speak about helping and supporting the siblings in this journey, it's not their body, but you know, it's directly impacting them. 
that is such a valuable piece. And that's the part of what you're doing today. I find just so fascinating. Mm, yeah. I think that's a huge, a huge piece of it. I think there's a lot of possible like resentment, um, that, yeah, that can build through siblings. Just in general, I was having a conversation <laughs> with my mom this morning about sibling rivalry in, like, I read this book on sibling rivalry, like, three times, and I'm, like, reading it for the fourth, because I'm, like, I, there's still more for me to learn there, just in general, normal life, you know, and um, the way we compare our children and the way they, yeah, that maybe the way they are versus the way that we think that they're supposed to be, or just so much. Um, so, yeah, trying to combat that a little bit by, like, also the siblings knowing that they're, like, their story is so unique and special too. Just like the, um, like in this instance, obviously there's also a lot of like pain um, in it as well. But just with Luca's specific story and her, her getting so much attention and um, yeah, so much extra focus. So yeah, trying to combat that a little bit. Wow. Yeah. You know, and that, what, what we're doing here at our collective journey now, we're, this just coincides so well with the stuff that I'm studying now and working with you know, the resilience scale and the brain story and the Pallax Foundation, the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative, right? And and how to build resilience is, you know, first step is to to start limiting or reducing adverse experiences, right? And that's without the service you're providing to those siblings, right? How much adverse experience might they be stacking on if, you know, they don't have somebody there to support them, if they don't have somebody there to, you know, share with them like you were saying Tannis you know your story is valuable and your experience is just as important right and 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 starting to create that safe environment for them to start to normalize some of their feelings and right totally like it's not um yeah a space for them to do that mm-hmm. it's, it feels so important oh wow amazing right and then the the connections you talked about connection, right? And and there's examples throughout your story you've shared today and Luca's story about how powerful connection is and whether it's community, whether it's with your parents, whether it's, you know, with the medical professionals that were on site throughout this journey as well. And um, you have a quote on your website that talks about connection is medicine. And I think that story is just a prime example, a great illustration of, you know, you can't put a, a title on it you can't put a label on it you, you just this connection piece is what i believe listening to your story what what really helped luca get through some of this stuff a hundred percent yes that like authentic connection of like um yeah you don't have to show up a certain way you don't have to perform a certain way there's just like um connection is so uh important and so raw and i think that's also like what's led me into this um practice of like grief coaching as well, because there's so many people who are just like, you've got this, you're, you can do it. Your story is powerful. You've got the skills, you know, just so much, um, uh, yeah. Encouragement through connection. And I know like it's when we go through painful things, it's so easy to isolate ourselves because we feel lonely in our experience. You know, mm-hmm. we feel like nobody really gets it or, um, which is so true. Like I felt that so deeply and I still feel that often. Um, but allowing ourselves to show up in a way that like allows connection by just telling our story, by just talking about our pain points, by um, showing up raw and authentically and then watching people um, connect to us and love on us and hold us is yeah, so powerful. Wow. Uh, can you share with the listeners how they can find you, Tannis? How can they find uh, where, what platforms are you on? Yeah. So um, my main, where I share a lot of my just like, 
free information, some like encouragement is on Instagram. So my name is just at Tannis Mitchell on Instagram. And then I have a link to my website there as well. So um, any of the programs that I'm offering, eventually when my courses go up, they'll be on there. Um, and yeah, so my blog posts and my writing is on there as well. And uh, yeah, those are, those are the biggest ones. My email is on there as well. Um, yeah, I love doing things like this, like sharing my story, doing, um, yeah, different collaborations with people who are also like in this field of like building resilience and kids and adults and parents. And, um, yeah, it's so cool. I love it. Yeah. And obviously I do too. Um, it's fascinating mm -hmm. and I wish, you know, I, I keep thinking back to being a parent and the different stages of life my children went through and, you know, mine stretch from 25 to two years old now. And, and what I know today, I wish I would have known, you know, 23 years ago. It's just so valuable to, to have this understanding, but maybe not even yourself, but to have that openness and that, that vulnerability and that courage to reach out to an individual like yourself, who's got this experience, right. And, and understanding that you're not alone in this. That's one thing that uh, is a common thread through a lot of people's personal, you know, adverse experiences is I know it wasn't mine. Nobody's ever going to get this. Nobody's been through what I'm going through. I'm all alone in this. And I, I don't have a clue what to do about it. Yeah. And you're not like supposed to have a clue, you know, like that's, that's a kind of where this crossroads is, is like, this is painful. I need help. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to have all of the skills. That's why we need to lean on each other and find a support and um, do the work because that's the way we get there. We're not like already supposed to have figured out. And I think when we have that mentality of like supposed to know what to do right now, then it isolate it totally isolates ourselves. We because that loneliness kicks in. We that like yeah, we think we're supposed to know how to get through it, and you're not. Like that's why the support's out there. That's why connection's so important. Wow. I think you, uh, you sum that up very beautifully and, and I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show today and, and sharing with our listeners, you know, your personal journey through this medical crisis that you and your family went through and, and also just shining that light and showing people that, you know, when you, uh, when you can give up control and trust, whether that's in a power greater than yourself, community connection, um, you know, just trust that, that there is a plan out there and uh, there's a lot of support. My goodness, there's a lot of support. And I think your story beautifully lays that out, that there was support coming from all over the world that people, you, you still don't even know who set up the skip the dishes train. Seriously. Yes. And there's like this piece of it too, that I think um, was really, just to touch on it really quickly, that yeah. was really important is also believing that like the strength that you need, like you don't, you don't have the skills necessarily. You need the like help, you need the community, but you also like the strength is there. Like you, you've already got it in you, you know? And I think that like, when I was able to tap into that as well, I didn't have to like, I could lean on people without like expecting all of the like growth to come from outside of myself. It was like, it is there like wow. this because life isn't supposed to look a different way you already have the strength inside of you it's tapping into that and allowing people to like pour into that um but like it is such an internal light and internal strength it's like already there like you got it you know like wow. and then you're like okay like i i can do this yeah yeah i think that's a piece that you know gets overlooked a lot in society and in in individuals when you're encountered with you know, some sort of adverse experience or some sort of medical crisis or whatever it looks like, right? We don't need to know 
how to do it. We don't need the skills and abilities. There's tons of people out there that have spent years researching it and know how to do it, but we do have that internal strength and we can do it. We have to be able to believe in that. And like you said, tap into it. Right. And once you start doing that, you lean into that support. Yeah. Things get a lot better. Yeah. hundred percent. Wow. Well, Tannis, is there anything you would love to leave our listeners with, whether it's some insight or just something motivational, whatever. Is there something that's you want to just share before we move on from this episode today? Man, I don't know. I think I've <laughs> said most of my piece. I, yeah, I think the, the biggest stuff lies in like, um, yeah, finding your people and holding them close and yeah, tapping into that internal strength and knowing that like you, um, yeah, your life is, is like not happening to you. It's supposed to happen this way. And, um, leaning into that acceptance will, will get you out of that, that pit of darkness and that pit of, um, like I can't do this because you totally can. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. No, thank you for, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being so willing and, and courageous and vulnerable to share your story because, uh, it's been proven time and time again that even if one person hears this, right, it's there's somebody out there who's experiencing something that's going to resonate from your story, I'm sure. And uh, yeah. if it helps one person, it's worth it every time. Totally. Well, thanks again, Tannis. And uh, for all the listeners out there, all of Tannis's social media and, and website, all her means of connection will be listed in the footnotes as usual. Uh, I just want to thank you once again for coming on, Tannis. And uh, much love from the OCJ family for your family and your little girls. And uh, wow. Amazing story of hope and resilience today. Uh, check us out on Instagram at FDTL podcast. Um, a lot of the guests collaborations and whatnot will be posted on there as well as we move forward. So Anytime, as usual, anybody interested in connecting with us or wants to get connected with one of our podcast guests, uh, just hit us up, either email us or, or through our website. We have a form on there. Just let us know and we can uh, help add to your community, your network of support, because like you heard today, right? It's, it's about leaning into that and finding your people and finding your support and uh, eventually leads to your purpose, I think. So with that, Tannis, thank you again. Thank you, Ryan. That was awesome. You bet. Thank you. And uh, everybody have a great week. We'll see you next week. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the real stories of people who've triumphed over the many challenges of life's journey. If you or a loved one needs support, please reach out to ourcollectivejourney.ca. Our commitment is to empower you to build resilience as you journey towards recovery. Consider showing your support by donating online at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive.